The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Oranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, a conversation of hope for Tuesday, April 29th. I'm your host, Terry Aranga, here with my guests, Skyhorse Publishing book authors, Dr. David Lewis, Lewis Conte, and Wayne Rohde. Skyhorse Publishing is a premier publisher of autism-related books, truly chronicling how to help children affected by the autism epidemic and how the situation occurred in the first place. Today, we will talk about science for sale, the autism war, and the vaccine court. Dr. David Lewis is an internationally recognized research microbiologist whose work in public health and environmental issues as a senior-level research microbiologist in EPA's Office of Research and Development and member of the graduate faculty of the University of Georgia has been reported in numerous news articles and documentaries from Time Magazine and Reader's Digest to National Geographic. He is the only EPA scientist to publish first authored articles in Nature, Lancet, and Nature Medicine. Louis Conti is the father of triplet boys age 13, two with autism. He was the lead investigator on the project that ultimately resulted in the publication of Unanswered Questions from the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program in the peer-reviewed May 2011 Pace Environmental Law Review, a seminal paper in the debate raging around autism and vaccines. Unanswered Questions proved that the U.S. government has been compensating children for vaccine-induced brain damage encephalopathy in the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program for over 20 years. Conti has worked in law enforcement for over 30 years and has advocated for people with autism in New York and Washington, D.C. Wayne Rohde is the father of twin boys, age 16, one diagnosed with moderate to severe regressive autism. Mr. Rohde's research and interviews for his book began nearly three years ago. Mr. Rohde began his autism and vaccine safety advocacy over eight years ago as a key leader for autism insurance coverage and removal of thimerosal from vaccines. Welcome, gentlemen. Good to be here. Thank you. I'd like to start with Dr. David Lewis's book because it really sets the terrain for the rest of our discussion. Dr. David Lewis's book is titled Science for Sale, How the U.S. Government Uses Powerful Corporations and leading universities to support government policies, silence top scientists, jeopardize our health, and protect corporate profits. About Dr. Lewis's book, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. said, quote, David Lewis has been a beacon of integrity against the apocalyptical forces of ignorance and greed endeavoring to divert science from the noble pursuit of truth 
and pervert it into a tool that supports the most destructive policies of industry and government, end quote. Dr. Lewis, in contrast to other writers, what does your book focus on in terms of influences upon science? Well, uh, Terry, the authors that have written on the subject of corruption of science and there are numerous books on the topic, have focused on corporate influence on science, how corporations fund universities, say in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, to have data that supports whatever product they're selling. Uh, what has been neglected in this debate largely is the overshadowing role that the federal government plays it's something that President Eisenhower actually warned about when he left office. Uh, he talked about how that the federal government was beginning to put so much funding into universities uh, to do studies that the government was interested in the outcome that that eventually was going to create a situation where science would be largely controlled by the federal government. And so having worked as a government scientist myself for over 30 years, I saw this developing uh, within the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. I also saw it as I interacted with the CDC in Atlanta and other federal agencies such as the Department of Agriculture there has been an evolution of government uh, intervention in science over the last 30 years that I think clearly has reached the stage that President Eisenhower warned about. That is, much of what you read in the scientific literature that has been funded by the federal government, some agency, is actually... Uh, engineered to produce results that support certain government policies and industry practices. And that is an area that is heavily impacting research on autism, which is really why I wrote this book. Dr. Lewis, you had a real-life example of this type of situation when your work was attacked by so-called journalist Brian Deere following your incriminating discovery of his link with work of the British government. Can you please fill in listeners about this? Yes. Uh, I actually have a research project at the National Whistleblower Center in Washington, D.C. that uh, I investigate cases where the government targets scientists scientists who are producing data, publishing data that is not in the government's best interest as far as their policies are concerned. And so I took an interest in the attacks that Brian Deere and the British Medical Journal were waging on Dr. Andrew Wakefield over publishing a paper in Lancet in 1998 in which uh, eight of uh, the children, out of 12 children as studied, their parents, the children's parents, linked the onset of regressive autism in their children 
to the MMR vaccine. And uh, it, it caught my attention because never before had I seen a scientific or medical journal launch an attack on a scientist's credibility and accuse a scientist of research misconduct. Uh, and that was being done by the British Medical Journal, and Brian Deere was a reporter that the British Medical Journal hired to basically discredit Dr. Wakefield, which he did an excellent job of discrediting him with allegations of research misconduct. Uh, but what caught my attention was reading this series of articles written by this reporter in the British Medical Journal, it struck me right off that uh, the, a reporter who has no training in science or medicine, which is a case with Brian Deere, uh, would not be capable of writing such articles. They're too articulate in medical terminology and other things. Uh, it's, it's, I liken it to uh, an auto mechanic. You know, if, if someone brings a car in to have it worked on, uh, a really good auto mechanic that can fix engines, talking with a person with car problems, knows within five minutes whether or not that person knows much about how automobile engines work. The same way in science and any other field, listening to Brian Deere talk, it was evident he didn't have a grasp at all on the science, so it raised a question with me. How did he do what he and the British Medical Journal claims he did? That is, to take, in the Lancet study, the hospital records of the patients in the study, the 12 children, and compare those with a table in the Lancet article of histopathologies, which is a technical term for looking at the evidence of disease in tissue samples. In this case, it was tissue samples from the children's colons. And so the gist of the, the story was that Brian Deere claimed that Dr. Wakefield the connection between the MMR vaccine and colitis in these children, and that, according to Brian Deere, eight of these children had normal biopsies according to the hospital records. Now, as a expert witness in medical malpractice cases, which I often am, uh, I know what it takes to and understand a hospital record, a pathology report, and I was sure that Brian Deere would not have the expertise to do that. So I, I contacted Dr. Wakefield and asked whether or not he still had all of the evidence that was used uh, when the General Medical Council held hearings on his Lancet study uh, back in uh, 2007 to 2010, and he said he did, and, and so I asked if I could uh, go through those documents. 
which were no, it was enormous volumes of documents, and he was happy to let me have access to them. And as I went through them, I found one document that just blew me away. Uh, I didn't expect to find it, but it showed exactly what I suspected may have happened. That is, in 2005, when the General Medical Council got its expert witnesses together, their expert uh, pediatric gastroenterologist, a man, a man by the name of Professor Ian Booth, was hired by a law firm which was retained by the British government. The law firm was Field, Fisher, and Waterhouse in London. And so they had, the, the government's lawyers had Professor Booth compare the patient pathology reports with a table in the Lancet article that listed the diagnoses of the 12 children in which the authors of the Lancet article concluded all but one had evidence of colitis. Well, when the government expert turned his report into Phil Fisher and Waterhouse in 2005, in that comparison of records, he concluded that five of the patients had normal or virtually normal pathologies. Well, what struck me odd about that in the first place, and I sent an email to Professor Booth uh, in 2011 and asked a simple question. Why would you compare table one of the Lancet article, which is based on an expert-blinded analysis of the biopsies, by blinded, I mean that the expert who analyzed those biopsies didn't know which biopsy matched which patient. It was a blinded study, which is done in science. So it eliminates bias uh, from the observer, the pathologist in this case. So I asked Professor Booth, why would you take this table, which is based on this blinded expert analysis, and not compare it with a blinded expert analysis. And instead, go to hospital records, which are completed by routine doctors, different doctors that look at the pathology reports. Uh, it might be a dermatologist. It might be you know, someone who's used to looking at liver biopsies. It's not a scientific study. Why was the government's expert ignoring the scientific data and comparing the Lancet article with something that was obviously very unscientific. And so Professor Booth emailed me back and he said that the government's lawyers instructed him to do that. So that raised all kind of red flags, not the least of which was how did it happen that a government's expert submits a report in 2005, and it's kept confidential. It was never introduced as evidence in the GMC hearings. How did that end up being published in 2010 by Brian Deere, a reporter with no experience in histopathology or medicine 
at all and claim that that's his own analysis. And we're talking about a reporter who received two British press awards for his analysis of patient records in the Lancet article, which he uh, published in the Sunday Times first and then the BMJ. So that struck my attention, obviously, and uh, I ended up digging more through the documents. I found the actual government's, uh, or that is the uh, Lancet Studies expert data sheets of, of his expert analysis of blinded study, which Brian Deere said didn't exist anymore. So, in fact, in the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, Brian Deere claimed that those reports were missing. They were no longer available, that the only thing available were these hospital records, and that just wasn't true. So I gathered all of these documents together and submitted them to the British Medical Journal, along with a commentary saying Brian Deere's analysis not only is totally incorrect, but it is an analysis that was performed by the British government as part of a lawsuit. Um, so, in the end, uh, the British Medical Journal published some of the documents, selected documents, uh, that I had turned up. And... Uh, and that was sort of the end of the story. They disagreed with uh, the importance of the documents, but I continued to pursue them and have summarized them in this book. Well, Dr. Lewis, that certainly is a, a glaring incrimination of uh, the the text that had a Brian Deere byline, uh, yeah. shall we say. Uh, so, one more question before we speak with Mr. Conti. Uh, we both know wonderful, truthful organizations like the nonprofit Focus Autism, which oversees the A Shot of Truth campaign, and the nonprofit organization Children's Medical Safety Research Institute. These organizations have an interest in preventing neurotoxicity to developing children. Can you please briefly tell us about your current work related to this topic? Yes, uh, I have a uh, project that we're uh, developing at the University of British Columbia uh, in which we're interested in a possible connection between environmental exposures and uh, vaccines environmental pollutants uh, in particular, you know, a lot of uh, heavy metals, uh, organic chemicals, pesticides, etc., have been linked to autism. And so most of the research going on on environmental triggers has to do with these environmental pollutants. Well, it turns out that aluminum adjuvants that are found in many vaccines uh, indirectly compromise the blood-brain barrier that keeps those kind of pollutants out of contact with the brain. And that being the case, it took my, caught my interest that 
what if the two are connected, that all of the research being done on environmental pollutants that's linked to autism might be also connected with vaccines in that the aluminum adjuvants are allowing those pollutants to expose the brain. So we're trying to get that research off the ground, and uh, the two organizations you mentioned have been just key in gaining support for scientists, not only myself, but scientists around the world, to work on these types of areas that are not being looked at. And we encourage listeners to visit those organizations, Focus Autism at www.focusautisminc.org and Children's Medical Safety Research Institute at www.cmsri.org. You can also visit the A Shot of Truth campaign at www a shot of truth.org. There's an excellent timeline there at a shot of truth.org forward slash history. And uh, we are going to just give a brief shout out here to Skyhorse Publishing. Please visit the Skyhorse Publishing website at www.skyhorsepublishing.com. Skyhorse will be joining authors Dr. David Lewis. Louis Conti, Wayne Brody, and us at the Autism One 2014 conference with over 100 speakers, May 21st through 25th in Chicago. You can register at www.autismone.org. And now we are going to be speaking with Louis Conti. Hello, Lou. Hey, how are you today? Well, Lou, uh, we are going to talk now about your recently published book, The Autism War. Can you please inform listeners about the history of the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, how it works or does not work, and why this is important to know? Well, the uh, National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program uh, was created by an act of Congress in 1986 and became operational in 1988. It was supposed to be an informal, um, uh, compassionate venue for people who claim to have vaccine injuries. Um, and in, in exchange for not suing the companies that manufacture vaccines, uh, petitioners, uh, in essence, sue the Secretary of Health and Human Services uh, and bring a petition for compensation. Um, the standard of evidence in the program is supposed to be a preponderance of evidence. That is to say, uh, you know, in law that's described as 50% plus the weight of a feather. So the burden is supposed to not be terribly high. The process is, to, is supposed to be uh, informal, swift, compassionate, um, and that's how it was set up you know, by Congress. That was their intent. The intent stemmed from uh, what was going on in the mid-1980s around the DPT vaccination. And uh, beginning in England in the 1970s, there was something called the National Childhood Encephalopathy Study, which was started by a Dr. David Miller there. Uh, and he looked at whether uh, what, the, what the folks in England were calling DPT syndrome did indeed um, occur as a result of, of the DPT vaccine. 
ultimately the National Childhood Encephalopathy Study came down that on rare occasions um, that indeed uh, the DPT did uh, cause encephalopathy, which is a broad medical term for brain damage um, and brain injury. So with that in mind, uh, the drug companies at the time had signaled to Congress that they were going to get out of the vaccine business uh, and that there would be shortages of uh, needed vaccines. And so Congress built in this no-fault program. Um, in, in terms of whether one now regards it as just, one of, the, one of the things that was interesting is just yesterday Wayne pointed out to me that a case was finally resolved, it was dismissed, uh, after 15 years. It was just posted yesterday uh, on, on the claims website. Um, many people feel that the program has wandered uh, seriously away from the original intent of Congress uh, which again was to be compassionate, swift, and in you know in close calls, erring on the side of the petitioners, and frankly, the rate of of finding for petitioners has dropped, um, and and there are other issues as well. You know, with the program in terms of the way that uh, expert witnesses are treated, uh, in in terms of the way even petitioners are treated, uh, and so. There, right now, it, if a person in the United States of America feels that they or a family member have suffered a vaccine injury, this is the only venue that you can bring a petition you, uh, to seek relief for. You cannot sue a drug company for a vaccine injury. Uh, this is completely unique, really, in all of, uh, all of American law. So it's, it's a unique program that you know, really does need congressional review. I was going to ask you, Lou, if the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program was truly a vehicle where justice for the vaccine injured uh, would be delivered, the vaccine injured person. But it sounds from your first answer like that is not the case and um, that is, it, it does not deliver uh, swift, non-contentious justice. Uh, compensation or redress? Well, you know, the, um, I, I work in uh, the court system in New York. I'm not an attorney, but I've been in, involved in courts here for over 30 years. Um, and and I, I run investigations for my department. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of familiar with the way a court ought to run. And there's something about the way a court, a court, a true court runs, that we just kind of accept as a norm, and that is it is a place where ultimately the truth gets spoken. Um, within the, the compensation program, I find that that is not the case. And I, I got into studying the program uh, because I, I discovered that the term encephalopathy often meant that a child who suffered uh, from a vaccine injury uh, and suffered brain damage also had autism. Uh, and the, the program handled that as what they called the sequela or a result of, of the injury. Um, and so the, the issue of autism, particularly in the early DPT cases, was not a terribly important issue um, because the increase in autism had not yet registered uh, with the public. 
you know, back in the 1980s, there were there wasn't an Autism One conference. There wasn't um, Autism Awareness Month, and autism was at that point a rare diagnosis. And yet, many of the people working in the program knew that children who suffered brain damage as a result of vaccine injuries, oftentimes not always, but oftentimes developed autism. Uh, and yet, uh, once you get to the uh, uh, to 2002, and and the the program decides that they're going to hold hearings on whether vaccines cause autism. Those hearings were called the omnibus autism proceedings. The the program acted as if it had never heard of autism before. Uh, and ultimately, uh, I was part of an investigation that reviewed as many cases as we could get access to through public records. The government did not allow us access to uh, the vast majority of cases. We had a sample size really of less than 200 cases, and yet we found 83 individuals who suffered brain damage and who also had autism. And in the years that have followed, in conversations with the people in the program, it has emerged that they knew that indeed uh, autism was a regular uh, occurrence uh, in, in these cases. And we need to remember that autism is a behavioral diagnosis. It's not a separate disease. Now, of course, Certainly on your radio show and, and with everyone who has a child with autism, we recognize their physiological components of it. It's a manifestation of, of a child who's not well. We understand that, but autism is a behavioral diagnosis. And if you have the behaviors of autism, you have autism. And that leads us to the very odd concession in a case now known as Child Dose 77, in which the program conceded that the vaccines that that child received resulted in autism-like symptoms. And this is the wordsmithing and the, you know, the use of parlance that goes on within the program to cover up what everybody really knows. The problem, Lou, with the, uh, with the media reporting the party line that vaccines don't cause autism is that the public is further misled and children are further imperiled. Parents-to-be, new parents are further misled. They vaccinate their child. The child may uh, develop a neurodevelopmental or behavioral challenge for which there is then no form of relief or redress. And then there are seminars at universities such as Brian Deere speaking in a university venue, for example, um, and there's misinformation in the media. How have the mechanisms of corruption alluded to by Dr. David Lewis earlier in this program influenced the status of the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program and these other uh, public venues? Well, you know, um, it's exactly as Dr. Lewis said. Um, government and corporate interests have become policy interests for the entire country, um, and it's, it's work to obfuscate um, the reality of, of what goes on in these cases and the reality of what vaccine injury looks like. I, I chose in, in writing my novel, The Autism War, uh, which is a novel. It's not a factual story, um, and any relationship to actual characters is coincidence and just uh, a story I elected to tell because I, I wanted to do essentially what Harriet Beecher Stowe did with Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is everyone uh, in the United States 
in the slavery days, recognized that slavery was evil. It wasn't until they read it in a story and the human impact of that story could be, could be felt on an emotional level that the country really finally ultimately, ultimately mobilized to engage the problem. Um, and that's what I sought to do there because it is exactly what Dr. Lewis is speaking to. And, and we owe him uh, a huge debt for the courage it takes to speak out. And, and the personal hardship he's been through and that Dr. Wakefield has been through for speaking the truth, for listening to their patients. Uh, and so I, I wrote the book on, uh, you know, on multiple levels, but on one level to address this phenomena, which uh, to me, and it's just my point of view, I see you know, what has occurred here to be very similar to what occurred in Japan with the Minamata poisoning. Um, the same things happened there. Government-backed industry, it was bad to question industry. You don't question authority. And then ultimately the truth came out. Uh, and ultimately I think that's what will happen here. But in the meantime, so many children imperiled and grievously injured. What, have, what has happened to humanity? It's, it's heinous, it's grievous, and it's, it's truly beyond sad. Lou, what was the importance of unanswered questions from the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, and why was it critical to your composition of the autism war? Well, the first thing to consider about unanswered questions is it's not science. It's legal scholarship. Um, we didn't run experiments on people or anything like that. Uh, it was peer-reviewed uh, in, in a um, peer-reviewed law journal, the Pace Environmental Law Review, um, which is very prestigious, and I think that's part of the reason why it, it angered our opposition. But what we showed there was that um, if one l examined the cases of brain injury, one would, would find autism. Uh, and we found it in, in a volume that, quite frankly, um, was alarming. Uh, approximately 43% of our cases uh, in the sample we were able to get access to um, showed that brain damage from vaccine injury often is accompanied by autism. That's not a finding that ought to be dismissed. That's a finding that ought to be studied. The reality of autism as a result of, of, brain, of brain damage uh, from any source, and when, I would never tell you that it's only vaccine injuries that can, could trigger this. I think the research shows that there are other things that do cause autism as well. But we need to study these cases. We need an open, transparent uh, government program here, which this isn't, uh, to, to examine what happened in these cases uh, and study them carefully because they can inform us how to perhaps make better products, but also to explain, um, you know, how autism arises in children who suffer these issues. And if, if we could get that under, un, under our understanding, then, you know, we could begin to develop better interventions earlier and take care of, of, of our kids. The country has a right to know. This is the country's program. This is not a corporate entity. This is not some private fund that compensates people. This is a program of the United States government. It belongs to the people, and the people have a right to know what the reality of vaccine injury looks like. Better than even taking care of autism early after an autism diagnosis has occurred is prevention, and we encourage listeners to visit organizations 
very interested in prevention of autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders. Focus Autism at focusautisminc.org. Children's Medical Safety Research Institute at www.cmsri.org and A Shot of Truth at www.ashotoftruth.org. We want to give another shout-out to our friends at Skyhorse Publishing. You can find them at www.skyhorsepublishing.com. And now we are going to be talking with author Wayne Rohde. And uh, Wayne, your book is, your upcoming book is titled The Vaccine Court, The Dark Truth of America's Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. And uh, let's, let's just uh, bring in some background about uh, Louis Conti's work. His work with unanswered questions illuminated how there are legitimate legitimate cases of vaccine injury to children and how the government has known about this for decades. Wayne, what did your research reveal about the politics of the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program? For example, the politics of the vaccine injury table. Uh, Terry, first off, um, good morning or good afternoon to, uh, to you and to all your listeners, and thank you very much for allowing me to be on your program. Um, that is a very, uh, very complex question and uh, has many different tentacles to go and explore. And, and uh, first off, that when I started researching uh, this program, basically more on a full-time basis nearly three years ago, um, it started with what uh, Lou and uh, Mary Holland and, and Bob Krakow as the authors of Unanswered Questions really got me going forward that I wanted to look at this program, but from a parent's perspective. And I conducted hundred, several hundred different interviews with parents um, who have filed petitions within the court, uh, the program, if you will, whether they won whether they're, uh, or their case has been dismissed or some of them are still pending. Um, and started to get to understand what it was like from their perspective. Then I started looking at cases, per se, and I've been able to review nearly about 5,000 different decisions and orders and rulings. Um, a lot of cases, some of them very old, most of them you know, uh, in the last 10 years or so, and started looking at the differences between the different cases where certain cases were uh, decided in favor of the petitioner, maybe back in the uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, with very similar medical conditions and vaccines. And now, in the last four or five years, we see different uh, decisions, mainly against the petitioner. Um, so I started wanting to know what was that, you know, what was causing that. I think a lot of the politics, um, if you will, started um, back when the uh, Secretary of HHS, um, under the Clinton administration at the time, Donna Shalala, amended the vaccine injury table in 1995 and also in 1997. That really transformed this program from being a very efficient 
very fair, very generous program to being very adversarial, very litigious um, type of system. When she removed residual seizure disorder out of the table for most vaccines, um, that's the one that basically eliminated nearly half of the uh, pending uh, petitioner, uh, petitions that were already filed um, because that was the major claim for injury was the uh, seizures. But it was interesting, and actually it's getting to become very maddening when you start reaching in and starting researching and finding out the reasons why they did certain things. And you can only conclude that it was the strong hand of the pharmaceutical industry and the federal government working together to say, we need to stop this. Um, Because the actual recommendation that was used by the secretary at the time came from the IOM, the Institute of Medicine. When you look at that recommendation, it said they found evidence inadequate to accept or reject a causal relationship between the vaccines and the seizure disorder. But because of that, the secretary removes that injury from the table. Yet at the same time, the IOM said the same thing about the MMR and encephalopathy, where it had found evidence inadequate to accept or reject that relationship and kept that MMR encephalopathy in the table. So it it appears to me that they were cherry-picking what they wanted to do to stop these petitions, or uh, there were several hundred, if not a couple thousand, that were moving through the program. Um, And then the secretary went in and then later redefined encephalopathy to make it almost, almost virtually impossible for anyone, even today, to file a petition uh, for what we call an on-table injury and uh, prevail. So those, the politics there shows that um, it's not based on sound science. There is hardly any of these decisions, policy decisions, are based on science. It's more based on more of a, I would, I would offer that it's uh, based on um, a desired outcome right. of uh, what ne- is needed to be done uh, to the program to achieve the results that they have, and that is where almost nearly 90% of all petitioners today are dismissed. Corrupt and political expediency. Uh, Wayne, thank you for bringing up uh, various points, including the point about encephalopathy being redefined, that this is pivotal and um, if you look at a child, I know of a child, for example, who was diagnosed with severe autism and whose objective laboratory testing showed mercury off the chart, and that child looked like a child uh, who Luke Conti would reference from Minamata seizing. And uh, it is very unfortunate that these individuals who have been grievously injured 
are then denied redress, justice, and the opportunity for restoration um, of health via resources to do so. There is something called the Daubert Standard, Wayne, which governs the admissibility of evidence in some legal proceedings. Does this in any way have bearing upon what you write about? What are the politics that go into what information is admissible or revealed in a vaccine-related court case? Okay. Um, When you think of um, the the proceedings of the vaccine court, if you will, there is no judge. There is no jury. It is basically uh, a government attorney appointed as a special master to oversee a proceeding. And you have uh, a petitioner who's filing a claim, represented, generally represented by an attorney, and the respondent, which is the secretary of HHS, uh, is generally represented by an attorney from the uh, Department of Justice. The most of these claims, um, if they're found in favor of a petitioner um, or done before the special master would actually get involved and conduct hearings, they're a joint stipulation. There'll, there'll be a settlement between parties, and we'll never know what actually happened there. But when it gets into what we call a hearing per se, the Daubert standard basically is how do we introduce evidence into a legal proceeding? And with the court, the gatekeeper of determining who is credible or not as far as evidence is the special master. Um, There's been a lot of different research, a lot of different papers on whether or not Daubert um, uh, should be uh, be a part of the proceedings. Generally, it's not when you have a, a regular hearing, but it got to be a real big problem in the uh, omnibus autism proceedings because that's where a lot of different evidence was introduced, and it's up to the special master whether to accept it or reject it. And um, this is why this whole program is, is really a mess, because there's no consistency in regards to whether or not your petition is going to be adjudicated at the same level and same, uh, being consistent with the same standards as someone who um, 10 years ago filed uh, nearly the same petition. Uh, mm-hmm. Currently, the big mess right now in regards to Daubert is, uh, uh, is centered around all these cases that um, basically the, the DTaP vaccine were causing uh, seizures and epilepsy. And uh, recently in the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals, there was two decisions handed down in January. And this uh, Court of Appeals is one step below the U.S. Supreme Court. And on appeal, um, two different petitioners who won major compensation awards because of uh, severe damages, um, the circuit court threw out the judgments, threw out the uh, the compensation, because uh, it centers around whether or not the child has a gene mutation known as the FCN1A or Dervais syndrome. And when they threw that out, it got to the point now where the, um, the circuit uh, allows the special master to compel 
petitioners who file petitions now, if you file a petition today uh, claiming the DTaP vaccine caused seizures, the special master can actually compel you to take a genetic test prior to a continuation of your petition. And if you do show that that uh, gene mutation, your your petition will be dismissed. Yet science doesn't prove that. There's not a certainty that if you have that gene mutation, um, you will have seizures and epilepsy. Um, So we're we're having problems within our courts, within the court, within the special masters, and how they handle evidence. And hopefully we'll have a case soon that will actually get up into the Supreme Court and make a final determination. Um, But it is a mess right now. You know, it's really ironic that the... um, It's been said that the unanswered questions paper, you know, it was in a, a law journal, not a medical journal, but here we have... Uh, these uh, social service kind of agencies who are not, who, uh, how are they qualified to make these intricate health determinations? Does that seem ironic to you? Yeah. Um, one of the big problems we're, we're, that, are, um, that petitioners have is the ability to find qualified medical experts to, help, uh, to testify on their behalf. And um, matter of fact, it was um, Lou Conti here that found the uh, secretary of HHS was actually bidding out the services of medical experts um, to get them on to be uh, uh, for them on the respondent side. And a common legal process by attorneys is that you want to make sure you gather all the medical experts for your side so your opponent doesn't have anything. And that's what I'm seeing happening. And, um, and then you also you have uh, individuals that are trying to um, uh, present evidence that, are, um, that might not have the exact qualifications and therefore they're being disqualified. And it's a problem there on that. Mm-hmm. Plus they intimidate, scapegoat, and vilify um, the... Uh, people who would potentially be experts on the petitioner's side. I think at this point we need to remind listeners of the titles of your books and let them know where they can obtain these books. And uh, we have Dr. David Lewis's Science for Sale. We have Lou Conti's The Autism War. And we have Wayne Rohde's The Vaccine Court. And gentlemen, where can... Listeners, obtain your books. We'll start with Dr. Lewis. Uh, I have a uh, website at the National Whistleblower Center that uh, people can go to. It's simple. It's uh, researchmisconduct.org, and we will be putting up a lot of information about the book uh, over the next couple of weeks. All right. And Lou? Uh, My book is available, of course, through the Skyhorse website. Um, and the Autism War is also available, you know, online at Amazon, uh, and it will be available at the Autism One Conference, uh, where, where there will be a book signing on the Friday, 
at about 3 o'clock, uh, and uh, uh, look forward to that. And Wayne? My book is to be released uh, the first week of September. Uh, currently, it is available for uh, a pre-order on Amazon, and also believe it will be available on the Skyhorse website soon. And to our listeners, um, Lewis County and Wayne Rohde will be speaking Friday morning, May 23rd, at the Autism One Conference. Dr. David Lewis will be speaking Friday afternoon at the Autism One Conference. And um, if you have uh, any further uh, questions or information, you can visit them there. Um, I'd like to circle around Dr. Lewis. Would you care to comment on the politics of the peer review process or anything you heard uh Lou Conti or Wayne addressing? Well, uh, yes, I think in both cases, Lou and Wayne made outstanding points about the pitfalls of the peer review process today. Um, It is one that is manipulated heavily uh, by government and industry through a variety of mechanisms. Uh, There was one thing that uh, Wayne pointed out, it really caught my attention because in his investigations, he found that the problems with the vaccine court, the politicization of it, began in the Clinton administration with Shalala. And that's what I found in all the areas I looked at where federal agencies have made this transformation from science-based organizations to politically run organizations that are using the peer review process with the scientific journals to support government policies and industry practices, it began in the first Clinton administration. I don't know what that means. I'm politically, I'm not making a statement, but that's just a fact. That is when our government changed in the way it uses science. Excellent, excellent point. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank the three of you for sharing this illuminating information with us here today, which is vital for the public to know. To our listeners again, uh, Dr. David Lewis, Lewis Conti, Wayne Rohde, and Skyhorse Publishing will be on hand in Chicago. Book signings, over 100 speakers, five days, special events, and more. Please join us in Chicago, www.autism1.org. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.